Good Friday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know all of you are glad that it is Friday. Uh, Where I'm at, uh, it's raining outside, but you know what? That's okay by me. Um, With the weather like it is, I'll I'll take the weather. Uh, It's been much cooler outside, and it's a huge difference in weather compared to what it was two months ago in my neck of the woods when it was uh, nothing but uh, absolute blazing hot. So uh, this is definitely a nice uh, change in weather, and uh, I've already noticed uh, leaves starting to gradually change color, not in a um, drastic sense, but I'm starting to see the early signs, and uh, I like fall, and I always like like it when the leaves change color, because it just brings out a great diversity uh, with fall-like colors. But here we are tonight, talking once again about founding martyr, as we all know, about the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero. I know I've said that a lot, but you know what? We need to constantly be reminded that there were many individuals who were living at the time of the American Revolution who did have a significant impact, but they too have been considered probably to be, uh, what do you call it, uh, forgotten heroes or just forgotten individuals who did leave a lasting legacy in securing the freedoms that we have today, but also at times freedoms that we do tend to take for granted that we must be remindful of that uh, freedom itself is not free. And Dr. Joseph Warren is one of those individuals who, yes, for many years had been forgotten, but thanks to Christian de Spigna and other uh, prominent historians, they have brought him back into the lifelight or into the limelight, rather, I should say, to have that same kind of uh, legacy and character in the same way as a George Washington, a Paul Revere, a Thomas Jefferson, um, any of our other prominent uh, forefather-like individuals who, um, who were around at the time of the Revolution. So anyways, tonight we are going to be talking about 1774, um, which is our uh, primary focal um, point of uh, tonight's podcast discussion. Now, our first bonus question will be the following. After Elizabeth Warren's passing in 1773, would Joseph Warren engage himself in the courtship process? The answer is yes. In 1774, He entered into a relationship with a woman named Mercy Scolay, whom ironically he had known for years. Well, one could say right here that this is a small world, and technically you can say yes. Um, After all, when you're growing up during this time, you know, people don't live in what's called what we know of today as the suburbs. You either lived out in the country, that is out in, you know, rural farm-like settings, or you lived in the city, but there were no such things as suburbs. So, Mercy Scolay's father uh, was John Scolay, who was a wealthy merchant, so it's very safe to say that Mercy uh, herself comes from a well-to-do family. And it turns out that John Scolay not only is a wealthy merchant, but he became an ardent Whig, meaning a ardent supporter of um, 
anti, um, what do you call it, of anti-English um, um, policies that um, brought uh, suffering and um, unnecessary hardships to the hardworking people of Boston, or let alone Massachusetts. So this relationship begins in the spring of 1774, but the ironic thing is that it's not like Joseph Warren and Mercy Scolet. They weren't set up on a blind date. How uh, Mercy Scolet um, reaches out to Joseph is that uh, she makes multiple visits to his medical practice as a patient. Of course, in today's time, most people would think that the doctor, being in this case Dr. Warren, was flirting with one of his patients. But in this day and age, uh, that was not how it was uh, interpreted. But then again, most people didn't have, um, most people uh, probably had a better sense of uh, respect in the sense of, okay, if Joseph Warren, being a widower, lost his wife a year ago, um, he obviously knows this person. Um, the bottom line is he's entitled to his happiness. So in other words, there wasn't a whole lot of gossip about it. So um, Mercy Scolet, on the other hand, is a very, very smart woman. She is very uh, well-read, and that also includes Scripture, being Bible, not just the Bible, but Bible verses. She is very well-knowledgeable in Boston politics. I think it's fair to say that their courtship was meant to be. Like Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis, Mercy Scolet herself would play a pivotal role in advocating the cause for liberty. She was a very outspoken critic towards Parliament and the Crown. We tend to think that, uh, that men in this, in this day and time, or in that day and time, were the only ones who... Um, could have a say in um, politics or governmental affairs, and while that was the case, there were a lot of women, most notably that of Abigail Adams and even Mercy Scolet, who um, made their voices known. And I think that was a very good thing because um, you do need to have some women out there who can take a stand, and not only just take a stand for themselves, but to show support um, for the greater cause of liberty. Now, um, what's important about June 14th to June 15th of 1774? The first regimental waves of British troops arrive into Boston's uh, Long Wharf, or rather, I should say, Boston's uh, Harbor. And it's also eventually followed by other waves of uh, troops that would come from places like Quebec, Canada, Halifax, uh, or should I say in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia for that matter, uh, to New York and New Jersey. So we have to remember that it's very easy to assume that when British troops come over to colonial America that, that all of them are coming from England. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, at this point in time, there are probably about 12,000 12 to 15,000 troops in the King's army. And they are uh, placed in various parts around the world, but a majority of them are going to be stationed in, um, 
in Boston and in other places in colonial America, but most of them will get rerouted to Boston. After all, we're looking at about 4,000 about 4,000 troops have arrived into, into Boston by the time uh, Thomas Gage, or let alone I should say General Thomas Gage, becomes um, the new royal governor who uh, replaces uh, Thomas Hutchinson. Did Governor Gage, this here's a good bonus question right here, did Governor Gage have authority to block Boston's town meetings? Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, one of those, um, one of the um, acts that fell under the uh, coercive or intolerable acts being uh, the Government Act, that pretty much uh, nullified uh, Boston um, town hall meetings from taking place on a regular basis. It basically said that town hall meetings could only happen once a year, and the only way they could happen more than once a year was through approval of the royal governor. So therefore... Governor Gage is pretty much um, giving uh, the people of Boston an unnecessary dose of um, unfair rule. Well, what does Dr. Warren do in response to uh, General Gage's blocking the town meetings? What is he going to propose? He proposed holding a county convention in order to show opposition towards the coercive acts. Okay. If we're not going to be able to have a town hall meeting, we've got to come up with a, an alternative way to get our voice out. So on June 6th of 1774, Joseph Warren proposes the idea of having a Continental Congress assemble an opposition to England. Now, when I read this book last year, I, before I read it, I was always under the assumption that... Um, Men like John Adams and his cousin Samuel Adams and other um, leading Bostonians were the ones who uh, came together and said, hey, we need to have a uh, Continental Congress assemble uh, to express opposition towards England. Well, don't get me wrong, Samuel and John Adams are very, very uh, key leaders to this movement, but I think it's fair to say that most people would forget that it was Joseph Warren who was the one that was the first to lay down the idea of having a Continental Congress. So, we should all be, when we all think of um, that one person who uh, was the first to uh, propose the idea of having a Continental Congress assemble, we need to thank Dr. Joseph Warren for that. Now, in here we are still in June of 1774. Joseph Warren is appointed to the Donations Committee. Okay? What is the Donations Committee, and why is it so important? Its purpose was to help relieve hardships that many families had endured as a result of the Port Act. And remember, folks, about the Port Act? That closed... Parliament passed that legislation. That was another example of a piece of legislation that fell under those intolerable slash coercive acts. The Port Act pretty much closed the entire port of Boston. So in other words, goods coming into Boston and out uh, were no longer allowed. Um, the uh, interim um, government location for Massachusetts went to Salem, and that is also where the port... Um, 
the new port would take over. That is, goods that came in and out of Boston would, would instead be rerouted to Salem. So the closure of the port was a very, very um, terrible uh, thing for uh Bostonians as, as a whole. It's not so much that they were re, uh, relying on the goods that were coming in as a means of um, economic security, but it was more so about the goods leaving Boston to go elsewhere. The problem, like for example, would be this. The closure of the port, it was bad enough that the port was closed, but think about everyday, everyday necessities. Well, for Bostonians, one everyday necessity that they can't live without is firewood. So think about this, folks. If firewood was normally brought into the port, guess what's going to have to be done now? It's going to have to be transported over land, which will take further additional time and money. Um, here's an example right here of uh, transporting something from point A to point B that's not free. It costs more money and extra time, that is, to assemble wood onto a cart and have it go by horse and buggy. And for all we know, that could be a two-day journey, depending on where it's going from point A being Boston to, say, elsewhere outside of the city. And think about this, too. Many people's livelihoods were dependent upon the port of Boston, not just those who worked in the shipping business uh, not just with the goods being shipped in and out, but you think about it, the shipbuilders who built the ships and um, those who, um, what do you call it, were wood makers, uh, joiners. I mean, everybody's got a role here, people, in this um, in this port. It's just not confined to one sector of people. There are a lot of people's uh, livelihoods that are at stake. So with Boston's economy now in despair... Would people, or should I say citizens, from other colonies step up to the plate and help out? The answer is yes. People from various colonies sent items like grain, rice, and flour. Now this is where I see uh, a, what's called a good act of kindness, or not just a good act, but multiple acts of good kindness. It's a shame that we don't have more of that even in today's world, but it, but it seemed like more of that was going on even in a time of hardship for, given that the Port of Boston is closed. I think it took this piece of legislation that was passed by Parliament to get the other colonies to realize just how serious uh, the magnitude or let alone the scope of the uh, greater problem was in general. And it is fair to say that, um, that whatever was going on in Boston at this time, it made uh, people from the other colonies realize that, the same, that whatever was taking place in Boston could ha also happen in their neck of the woods. And this also included a fear of losing fundamental liberties and natural rights. So it's not just the port that's being closed, but taking away people's rights as everyday citizens to um, participate in their government, to um, making decisions that they would have been accustomed to making on their own, and now all of a sudden a foreign country is making those decisions for them without their consent. Now, did here's something else, too. You know, here we are, 
focusing on ordinary citizens stepping up to the plate and helping the people of Massachusetts. Did George Washington, now he's not General George Washington just yet, he still is uh, referred to as Colonel George Washington, but did George Washington himself sympathize with the people of Boston? Uh, The answer is yes, he did. Um, He went as far as saying something like, you know, with the port of Boston being closed and they are suffering at their expense, they are suffering terribly, we must um, have a day of fasting ourselves and we must also um, pray, not only just pray for them, but do what's necessary to help them out because this is not just an injustice on Massachusetts, it's, it's an injustice on all of England's subjects being her 13 colonies. So by 1774, independence itself, uh, the, the, the notion of independence, that is, has become more of a reality now compared to years past. So the 1770s really are uh, beginning to be seen, not just the 1770s, I mean, it all goes back to um, after the French and Indian War comes to an end, but it is fair to say that as the years have progressed since the French and Indian War ended, that um, tensions are are really um, escalating further. And by 1774, we are really beginning to see this notion that, hey, maybe not everyone agrees on independence just yet, but it's picking up more momentum and grad. It, it's not happening radically overnight, but the thought of it now is more relevant than it was five years ago. So September 1st of 1774, five delegates will attend the Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia from Massachusetts. Was, jo- was Joseph Warren one of those delegates? Uh, the answer is no. Would he have, on one hand, should he have been one of those delegates? Uh, Yes. But is Dr. Warren um, offended over the fact that he was not chosen to go? No. Matter of fact, it actually might have been a good thing that he wasn't chosen to have have, uh, been sent. And I say this because uh, somebody has to stay behind in Massachusetts to um, lead the Whig movement. And there is none other, um, there is not a better choice than to have Joseph Warren stay. Now, I'm not saying that had Paul Revere been in charge that he couldn't have done a good job as well, too. He, he would have done a good job. But there is something unique about Joseph Warren. For one, he is a successful doctor who has built a successful practice that has catered to people from all walks of life. If he were to leave, who's going to run his medical practice? And who's to say that if somebody else were to run his medical practice while he's gone, that that doctor would um, have been just as ex- been just as successful as he was? You just don't know. So I think it's fair to say that jo- Dr. Joseph Warren at this time is still a big fish in a small pond. He's established, he has earned so much success, but yet by staying where he's at, he's keeping, um, he's really keeping Massachusetts safe. 
And think about this, though. Uh, Warren's medical practice continues to grow despite losing loyalist clientele, but his home at the same time has become a center for political business. And that's important because think about this. Joseph Warren himself has been able to hold or let alone conduct several meetings secretly to where he's got people in line who know how to keep secrecy. They know how to maintain oath. In other words, they're not going to um, go chirp in a bar or a tavern about business that that the rest of the community doesn't need to know right away or just should not know at all because, you know, we have to remember too, many of these people are living in a time where, yes, they are surrounded by a lot of people who share their views, but at the same time, there's always one or two people who will um, do the opposite and um, share confidential or sensitive information to those who uh, wish to seek harm. And when that happens, you don't know how many lives have been put at stake. So while Samuel and John Adams have left for Boston, they've, well, they've left Boston for Philadelphia on August the 10th. Joseph Warren stays behind in Massachusetts, and he becomes the chief commander of the Whig Party in his colony, but he oversees all military, economic, and political um, challenges in Boston. So basically, you could say, in a sense, he's not been named the actual governor, but in a sense, Joseph Warren might as well be the governor of Massachusetts. Unfortunately, he has not been given that title. There is a governor, but he's a loyalist, General Thomas Gage. Well, with Boston's port closed and the British military occupation at its height, did Joseph Warren continue his fight in establishing resistance to Crown policies? Uh, the answer is yes. And he had no other choice. Failure to do so would mean automatic surrender. Without Warren's leadership, the fight for independence becomes extinguished in Massachusetts. So, we all know what lo to lose means, right? I mean, to lose means you've, you've lost something, like losing a, a football game. I remember, not to get off track here, but when I think of the, the term lose, I often think of a movie um, that many of you all probably know of, um, Invincible, with Mark Wahlberg, who played, um, who played the role of Philadelphia Eagle football player Vince Papali um, from back in the 1970s. It was a great movie. But uh, actor Greg Kinnear, who played... Um, Eagles, uh, leg Philadelphia Eagles legendary coach Dick Vermeil. I liked what Greg Kinnear said, and I think it would apply very well into this situation that Joseph Warren was faced with. Greg Kinnear said the following about losing. To lose means to fail. It means to surrender, to relinquish all hope. Greg Kinnear said this, No more. No more. Starting today, we're going to be on a path towards winning, and we're going to shake the rust out of these pads. Well, for Joseph Warren, he would have probably used the word lose in the same sense. 
that meaning to relinquish, to surrender, to give up all hope. And, and in his case, he would have said, hey, we're not going to let this cause rust. In other words, we've got to find a way to keep that flame alive. Because if, it, if, if the cause rusts, then, the hope, then any hope for independence is extinguished. So the bottom line is, is that, okay, with the Boston port closed, British military occupation is at its height. Joseph Warren knows that he's got to come up, he and other prominent Whig leaders like Paul Revere are going to have to come up with other ways to uh, keep this um, flame alive. So on September 1st, 1774, General Gage orders more than 250 British troops from multiple regiments into East Cambridge to take away a store of gunpowder. Now, uh, what college... In, there are several colleges and universities in Boston and, and some in uh, Cambridge, but when I think of one university alone that's in Cambridge, and it's a very, very prominent university... It's none other than Harvard, where Joseph Warren himself attended college. Same for John Adams, as well as his cousin Samuel Adams. So, General Gage's orders are to uh, go into East Cambridge to take away a store of gunpowder. This strategy was to prevent patriots from seizing ammunition the objective, or let alone mission, prevailed. The patriots are angry, as you could well imagine, and they demand the Tory leaders whom were involved resign for their involvement in the act. Well, how does Joseph Warren feel about this? Well, he's not happy about it, but he also knows... Well, this... Um, actually, I should say it's not a question of whether or not he knew... What happens next was just a random, um, it, ha it happened uh, randomly, but it was more of a fluke. And perhaps it was a good fluke. While he's en route to Cambridge, he runs in unexpectedly to Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver, who's obviously a staunch loyalist. But Oliver himself is aware of the situation, given that Large numbers of protesters are, have already um, shown up into uh, East Cambridge to uh, go about fueling the fire and wanting to engage in a, in a bad uh, confrontation. Warren and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver both come up with a compromise to agree not to send soldiers to the scene. This resulted in restoring peace and order to Boston. Now, on the outside, one would think, is Joseph Warren trying to appease to these um, British leaders? Yes and no. He's not appeasing. What he is trying to do is, um, he's trying to keep his composure. He's trying to find a way, okay, Deep down, I don't like how Parliament and the Crown are treating the people of Boston. But at the same time, I have to be careful about how I go about conducting myself in public because if I engage in open hostilities towards 
Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver, then word will get back to Governor Gage. And word will not only just get back to him, but there could be, like in today's time, like an arrest warrant out for me. Um, people could, um, those who are against me, could um, set fire to my medical practice. They could put my um, children in harm's way. The bottom line is, is that Joseph Warren might already know right now that there are people out there who uh, wish him harm, but it's only a small few. The, the worst thing, the, or should I say the last thing that Joseph Warren wants is for that, um, is for his um, status to become so endangered to the point where um, he could be a sitting um, duck at any moment. In other words, he could be a target um, to where somebody would, in today's time, want to um, go about assassinating him. Here's another bonus question right here, uh, especially in the aftermath with what has just happened. Did Tories or loyalists feel unstable even with large British troop presence? Well, it turns out yes. And a good example here was Lieutenant Governor Thomas Oliver and his family who have moved out of Cambridge into Boston where the King's troops could provide him and his family with better protection. So remember, folks, not all of the uh, Tories or Loyalists are living right in the heart of Boston. There are a fair number of them living on the outskirts. So the best way for these families, if they are truly threatened, would be to come right into the city of Boston because that's where a greater presence of um, the King's army will be located. While Samuel and John Adams are in Philadelphia attending the First Continental Congress, Joseph Warren went about working on a document that would represent the shift from resistance to what we now know as rebellion. Now, on September 6th of 1774, a second convention would be held in Dedham, right outside of Boston, but on August 26th, multiple town delegates nominated and chose Warren himself to be chairman of the Suffolk Convention. Well, what did the Suffolk Resolves produce? Well, it produced a variety of things, but every county in Massachusetts, with the exception of one, closed their courts instead of submitting to unfair measures. This also included denouncing the intolerable or coercive acts, but the resolves themselves also called for boycotting British imports, that is, goods coming into the, um, into the colonies, to reducing exports, that is, to reducing the number of goods leaving the colonies going to England, to a refusal on the payment of taxes until the Government Act got repealed. That is, the Government Act had um, pretty much um, eliminated the lower house's ability to, um, to nominate uh, the, the upper uh, chamber being the council members. So if that Government Act was repealed, it, it, would, it would go back to the way it used to be. 
This also included the power to establish colonial government free of royal authority until the intolerable acts were repealed. And this also included uh, encouraging colonies to raise militias. So the Suffolk resolves did produce a lot. I don't know if every outcome was achieved, but but it really did set the tone for what would um, lie ahead, um, especially for the uh, First Continental Congress. So, here's an important question, and I know that I had mentioned this to those of you who were with me when I um, talked about the book Signing Their Lives Away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Now, when the First Continental Congress met in September of 1774, not all 13 colonies had delegates um, sent. But the irony, though, is that 12 of the 13 colonies had um, delegates present. Do any of you all know which colony did not send delegates to the First Continental Congress gathering? The answer is Georgia. And what do you know? The most remote of all 13 colonies, Georgia, did not send any delegates. But there's a reason for that. The colony of Georgia was fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. Well, if you're fighting a war with Indians, or let alone an Indian tribal nation like the Creek Nation, a colony like Georgia is going to need its fair share of uh, financial assistance from England. And what do you think that's going to include? Ammunition, rifles, muskets. So if Georgia is so bent on fighting this war, do you think um, New Hampshire or um, Virginia is going to come to Georgia's defense? No. It's not that New Hampshire and Virginia don't care about Georgia. It's the fact that Georgia has chosen to um, alienate itself from the other colonies because they're more concerned about fighting a war over um what do you call it, over um, Indians for uh, personal security reasons, but they have, but the colony has failed to um, see to it that, um, that the uh, cause for separation from England or the uh, preconceived notion of separation ought to have greater importance. So, all, other, all the other 12 colonies, though, have come to a un unanimous decision to uh, convene in Philadelphia. I find this to be a good bonus question right here for you all. Was the first Continental Congress gathering the first of its kind where delegates from New Hampshire, all, or I should say from delegates from the, from the northernmost colony of New Hampshire to the southernmost colony of South Carolina, was this the first gathering where all of these men convened together as one for the first time? And the answer is yes. I can only imagine what that must have been like. Okay, what if I was a, um, a representative or a delegate from Virginia? 
And all of a sudden, I had the opportunity to meet some to meet people from as far north as New Hampshire and Massachusetts, to meeting someone as far south as South Carolina. Well, as John Adams described it, he noted in his journal, for example, how all of them had different customs, manners, and habits that were very different from one another. So yes, it's very safe to say that the men from New Hampshire were far um, had had far different um, what do you call it um, traditions and customs compared compared to the men from South Carolina. So here they are meeting each other for the first time and wondering, okay, how are we going to get along? What things do we have in common? What, stre- what can we offer to one another? What are our weaknesses or what are our differences? And whatever differences we have, how are we going to resolve them so that over time we can come together as one to, um, to share our, um, what do you call it, our bitter sen- or, or, um, opposition towards Parliament and the Crown so that um, we can achieve our desired objectives because I think it's fair to say that uh, a fair number of these um, delegates who have arrived, not all of them are gung-ho on separating from England right away. And it is fair to say that a fair number of delegates, how did a fair number of delegates portray Massachusetts? Well, many of them saw Massachusetts as a hotbed of political extremism with no middle of the road. And I will say this right away. You know, political extremism is nothing new. It's been around since probably since the beginning of time. Let's take, uh, for example, Massachusetts. As I, as I said just a moment ago, Massachusetts, in the eyes of a fair number of delegates from other colonies, most notably like Pennsylvania, South Carolina, to name a few, Yes, they would see those from Massachusetts as being um, extremists. Well, if you ask me, how would you describe the people of Massachusetts in terms of extremism? To me, they would be considered on the scale of the uh, far left. In other words, um, those who are on the far left will usually uh, assemble in large gatherings, and if it means venting their anger at someone or, a, or an, uh, an institution, uh, that is one thing, but they will usually um, take their anger out, like say, on a, um, on a governmental um, institution being a particular building where a decision was made that was not to their liking, and so that group of people may find that uh, resorting to burning a building would be the answer to the problem. And what do you know, uh, many, uh, many um, angry mob crowds in Boston did resort to burning uh, buildings uh, that were owned by uh, prominent uh, loyalist um, individuals, but also burning the homes of tax collectors who were loyal to the crown. Now, if you take, for example, the extreme right, the extreme right would be about those groups of people who would be going, who would be 
more concerned about going after people, and in many cases, uh, killing those people. Well, I see uh, the presence of, uh, of British troops in Boston as the extreme right, and it played out very evidently in the Boston Massacre, where two of the eight soldiers had been found guilty of manslaughter. They, they purposely wanted to kill innocent civilians in Boston, and what do you know, Matthew uh, Kilroy and Hugh White did exactly just that. So the problem to those who uh, view the people of Massachusetts, the problem for those delegates is that it's not a problem, but they see that the problem is that there, there is no middle of the road in Massachusetts. Nobody has been able to take a true stand to... Um, bring the, uh, what do you call it, the King's Army and the people of Boston together. But you know something? No matter who could be sent up there to try to moderate the problems, I don't believe anybody would have had success. I hate to say it, but the reality is, is that, and it even plays out in many places in the world today where uh, people have been in, at war or at conflict with one another to where um, resolutions are very hard to come by in terms of uh, bringing people together in the middle of the road. I hate to say this even in today's uh, society in this country. Uh, we look at Congress. Look at Congress now. Congress is very polarized. You know, you've got people on the right, people on the left. There's no middle of the road. So, on September 16th, uh, I, I like this. On September 16th, Paul Revere arrives in Phil, into Philadelphia with the Suffolk Resolves. Now, the Suffolk Resolves had been um, established, what, at least two weeks earlier? So, think about it. We don't have a postal service back then where um, mail can be sent to Philadelphia next day or a two-day um, service. So Paul Revere has been traveling for some time, folks, to bring the news to uh, the delegates in Philadelphia. But a day later on the 17th, the full Congress reads over the Suffolk Resolves, or read over the Suffolk Resolves, rather. And what do you know? They go about approving those resolves as well as adopting every one of Joseph Warren's proposals. So what do you know? A local boycott that was started in Massachusetts stating that all British goods should be, um, that is all British imported goods coming into Massachusetts ought to be boycotted, now becomes a unified measure where all of the colonies present, or all the delegates to the 12 colonies whom are present now are, are in full agreement that boycott of British goods coming into colonial America must go into effect. It is the first step towards separation from England. Now, on September 22nd, Joseph Warren is chosen to represent Boston at the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, which is his first official office. Do any of you all know what a provincial congress is? or a provincial government, let alone. It's, provincial is another word for interim. It's not the actual permanent government, but it's like a makeshift government. So in other words, 
you know, we've got to have some form of government that can function. And remember, folks, Joseph Warren is at the... Um, He's at the helm right now. He's the one that's uh, taking charge, given that Samuel Adams and his cousin uh, John are both in Philadelphia. Now, on October uh, 14th, the Continental Congress adopted a Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Any of you all know what grievances are? Complaints. They adopt a right, a declaration of rights and grievances in support against the coercive acts, which led to committees of inspection being formed throughout the colonies to enforce the boycott against England. Think about it. We can't just assume, okay, we're going to uh, boycott all British goods and just you know do nothing about it. We've got to have people um, out there watching out for goods that could be coming into us from England, and how are we going to um, turn them away? Now, on um, October 26th of, 26th of 1774, the First Continental Congress ad officially adjourns. That means its business is officially done. This Congress, though, or this uh, First Continental Congress has agreed, however, to con convene again if Parliament fails to resolve the colony's complaints. In other words, we've sent Parliament a list of grievances that they need to find a way to resolve with us. Because if they don't, Congress, ha will, Congress has already made a decision that if Parliament doesn't agree to resolve the complaints that Congress will agree to meet again come May 10th of 1775. So that means from the time that um, Congress, the First Continental Congress has adjourned on October 26th of 1774, that means that um, Parliament and the Crown have really almost seven months to get this matter resolved. Seven months should be enough time However, the million-dollar question is going to be this. Is Parliament going to budge? Is the Crown going to budge? I mean, is King George III going to have any sympathy for the colonies? We'll have to wait and find that out when I'm back on the air with my next podcast session with you guys. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and um, it's been great to be back on the air. It, but then again, it's always great to be on the air with you with you all my fellow listeners and I want to thank you all again uh, for listening in to what I have to share because um, too often uh, we forget about our history we know that there are certain people who played a key role like John Adams Thomas Jefferson Benjamin Franklin George Washington yes those men played a phenomenal role in the American Revolution, but we must remember about the about the forgotten martyrs, the forgotten heroes like Joseph Warren. I often wondered um, how much longer Joseph Warren would have lived. Of course, I know I shouldn't probably be giving any of this away, but we must remember that there were plenty of uh, people whose stories have been forgotten who um, did not live to see the end result. And what was that end result? When 
our forces defeated the British at Yorktown in 1781. I know I'm getting ahead of the game, but that is the reality, folks. Not everyone who is alive during this time made it a lot, made it uh, to where they got to see the end result. In other words, they they lived they lived during the height of the um, of the uh, controversy. They lived through the height of the um, of the period, but they didn't um, get to see the end result. And I think that's what we're missing out on, or what we tend to forget is that we we were led to believe that that all of the prominent leaders or those individuals who who were forgotten still got to live to see the end result, but they didn't. So remember, folks, um, as I said earlier, and I'll say it again right now in closing, that freedom isn't free. We do have freedoms. We have more freedoms in the world than a lot of other than people in most other countries would give anything in the world to have. But the bottom line is we cannot take our freedoms for granted. And if we do, we only have ourselves to blame as individuals. And I and, and I always remind myself each day when I wake up each morning how thankful I am that we have a that we have a stable government. It may not be perfect, but at least I know that I don't have to worry about waking up tomorrow and all of a sudden wonder finding out that a coup has happened and all of a sudden we don't have a government and i say this too because last week marked the 233rd anniversary of our nation's um of our nation's uh, constitution so our constitution has uh, survived the test of time folks Yes, the Declaration of Independence is a very uh, significant document, but it's not the uh, binding document that governs our country. But nonetheless, it laid the foundations for what we um, were able to secure 11 years later in 1787. So once again, folks, when you go to bed tonight, remember, come tomorrow morning, for those of you who live in this great country, you will still wake up in freedom. But remember, folks, there are people in this world who wake up tomorrow morning living in a, living in a country where freedom doesn't exist. Well, that's all for tonight. Take care and stay safe and God bless.